You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading this morning is from Romans 9, beginning in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What will, or will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This is the word of the Lord. So there's a scene from one of my favorite childhood movies, The Never-Ending Story, where Bastian, the reader, is diving into this fantasy world that is in danger named Fantasia. And he's glued. He's engaged. But then all of a sudden, he comes to this part in the book where Atreyu uh, approaches what's called the, the, um, the magic mirror gate. And it reveals in that moment something that's extremely shocking. Now, I won't give it away because you are going to go watch this movie now. But something that Bastion, the reader, was not ready for, he was not prepared for, something that he, he feels that has gone too far. The author has, like, crossed the line here. This is, is too much. And so what he does is he slams the book together and he throws it dramatically across the room. I'm, I'm done reading. The story is done. But eventually, despite his discomfort and his fear, fear causes us to close the book, by the way. Fear about what he'll discover. He ends up picking the book back up, and he continues to read because he realizes what he has just discovered means something that is going to be life-changing for him. 
And although it is extremely uncomfortable, it's not something he wanted to discover, he reads on because he realizes it would be a greater tragedy to stop. Portions of scripture like Romans 9 for many are the place where people want to slam the book closed and throw it across the room. And not just theoretically, I think that literally this has led people to slam the book and to throw it. People read verses like this and they say, I don't know if I can believe in a God like described here. This, this is not who I thought God was. This doesn't settle well with me. This does not complement the way that I was raised or my tradition or what my parents told me about God or what I like to believe about God. This is just, this is just too much. And so what do we do with the uncomfortable parts of Scripture? Because you're going to find it. You read long enough, and you're going to see things in Scripture where you say, I don't know what to do with this. Well, we've actually got a few options. Let me give you those options. One option is to resist. One option is to engage the Scripture skeptically and cynically, as maybe some of you are ready to do today, looking for ways to disprove what it has just said. Paul, the apostle, the author of this passage, actually is anticipating objections like these, people trying to poke holes in God's word. That's an option. Another option that I think probably many of us will choose to take is just to avoid it. We read something like this and like, I don't know what to do, Romans 10, moving on. Even as a pastor, I'm tempted to just sort of gloss over this passage today. Let's just make Romans 9 one sermon real quick and easy, draw out one simple point and move on. So we can avoid it, or we can press in. Press into the challenges and the things that bring discomfort. And obviously, I'm going to encourage us to press in. And here's why. Because the depth of our spiritual life is often going to depend on our willingness to engage God in the difficult and uncomfortable places. We don't grow in comfort and ease. We know this when it comes to our body. Where do we grow in strain and discomfort? And likewise, spiritual muscles, if I may, grow in those places of discomfort and strain. In the places where God shatters our conceptions of what we think he should be like and the ways that we think that God should act. C.S. Lewis once said, my idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. He shatters it himself. And then he asks this really perplexing question, could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? How do we know that God has drawn awesomely near to our lives? He takes everything that we thought to be true about God and undermines it and disrupts it and breaks open the box, the neat little categories that we wanted to fit God in. He bursts out of our pocket because God can't be placed in our pocket, so to speak. Now, the Apostle Paul is continuing in this theme of God's sovereign grace, how God has been working all throughout human history in order to form a new humanity. He describes it as a people of promise. And that he has chosen certain people to belong to his family, not on the basis of their race or their religious performance, but according to God's gracious purposes. And as Paul seeks to express this mystery, and it is a mystery, as he seeks to explain this mystery of election and, and, and answer all sorts of objections, if you notice that he is 
anticipating objections and trying to speak to those objections, what he does is he continues to point us, the church, back to the character and the work of God. This is really important because you are going to forever struggle to see the beauty of what is being said here if the focus is you. If the focus is on how this makes you feel and what you think to be true about God and your idea of what is fair and unfair and, and, and right and wrong about God. Paul gets our attention on God, so let's focus on God. Three points that frame this passage, I believe. God's mercy, God's might, and God's masterpiece. Let's look first at God's mercy. Look with me again in verse 14. What shall we say then? Objection number one. Is there injustice on God's part? Now, I think that this is the question that many of us are going to be wrestling with when it comes to this idea of election. Very basic. Is this fair? Is this fair? If you've ever looked at a passage like this and thought about the way that God works in the world and asked, is this fair? You're not alone. You're not the first. Is it fair that God would choose certain individuals and reject others on the basis of his own will? And to the question of, is it unjust of God, Paul responds, no. By no means, verse 14. Why? For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion. It depends on God, who has mercy. Justice has to do with giving someone something that they deserve. That's fairness. Mercy has to do with not giving someone something that they do deserve. Mercy is never owed. Mercy is never earned. It's a gift that's freely given. And the moment that someone claims to deserve mercy, it's no longer mercy. Well, I deserve mercy. You are obliged, you're obligated to give me mercy. That's not mercy. That's something else, but it's not mercy. And therefore, God is free to bestow mercy upon whom he wishes. This is just logically looking at this term mercy. But now let's get to the heart of this question, why we're asking in this. And I believe at the heart of the question of whether or not God is fair in all of this is a belief that somehow someone could deserve God's love and acceptance. God, how could you do this? What is beneath that question? The thought deep down that us or someone else deserves God's love, deserves God's mercy. This isn't an issue of God's justice because if God simply thought it, think about this with me, if God simply acted fairly and gave every single person what they deserve, then all of us who have sinned and rebelled against God would receive God's judgment and his rejection. If God was simply fair, no one would be saved. If God was only fair, we all would be in hell. So let's put the question of God, is this fair aside? We don't want simple fairness. We need more. We need more. God is not just unjust, or rather, God is not just just. The point here is that he goes beyond basic justice. God is merciful. He shows mercy. 
And if there was anyone involved in this entire equation that could rightfully say, you know what, God, this is unfair, it would be Jesus, the perfect righteous son of God who himself took the punishment for our sins on the cross so that the mercy of God could be extended to those of us who believe. If there was anyone who could say, whoa, 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 this is unfair, it's Jesus, and yet it is completely fair because as the gospel tells us, Jesus willingly went to the cross for us. Not just obligated or begrudging duty, Jesus willingly and joyfully endured the cross for our mercy. God is merciful. And it turns out that this is actually consistent with the way that God has related to humans in the very beginning. This is not just a new initiative. God is eternally merciful. It is who he is. It is his character. It's the way that he reveals himself to humanity. In Exodus 33, we're told, well, in the large portion of Exodus, we're told that Isaiah, right after being delivered out of Egypt, out of slavery and bondage, God is leading them into the promised land. What do they do? They start wilding out. They start rejecting God. God, we've seen you part the seas. We've seen you send the plagues. We've seen all that you've done, but we're going to choose a golden calf instead. And so Moses begins to plead with God. God, remember, these are your covenant people. I know, super easy just to wipe it clean, start fresh, start with a different people group. Please remember your promises. Please remember your character. In Exodus 33, it says that Moses said, please show me your glory. In other words, God, will you just give me a little hint that you're going to stick with us? Would you just give me a little indication, just a little hint that you're going to continue with us? And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Think about this. Moses says, I want to see you, and God says, I will tell you of my mercy. When we look into the mercy of God, we see the face and the glory of God. In fact, nothing shines brighter in this world of God's glory than mercy. Now, uh, a few subpoints, if you're taking notes. Ways that God's mercy actually transforms our lives and draws us out of ourselves. I want to look at just a few brief points here. First of all, God's mercy causes us to be grateful. God's mercy causes us to be graceful, uh, grateful. We're told that God is making known, quote, verse 23 and 24, the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Think about these words. Even us whom he has called. Now, I never noticed this, these two words, even us, until just recently studying this passage. He's not just making a statement. He is being caught up in wonder, even us. This is a, a statement of amazement. What Paul is expressing here is amazement that God would include him. Here's what mercy does. Mercy dismantles entitlement. Here's what mercy does. Mercy destroys spiritual pride. How can you be prideful in light of the mercy that God has shown? On what, what do you have to stand other than God's kindness and compassion. John Stott once said that the wonder is not that some are saved and others are not, but that anyone is saved at all. That 
is the wonder that God would include even us. Amen? Secondly, God's mercy gives us confidence to intercede and pray for others. We're going to look at this later on in chapter 10, but I just want to hint at this because the context of God speaking to Moses is Moses interceding and praying for the people. Moses is appealing to God's mercy for the sake of the people that he is praying for. And so what this means for us is that we can pray in a similar way. God, you are merciful in Moses' time. God, you are merciful in my life. Would you show your mercy and compassion in the life of this person that I love? Show your compassion again. It's who you are. We're not appealing to something outside of God. We're appealing to his character. You are merciful. Show your mercy, Lord. And third, God's mercy makes us eager to share the gospel. Eager to welcome other people to belong to the family of God. Tim Keller shares a story of a pastor in Korea in the early 20th century, about 100 years ago. And he ministered in areas that you could consider the slums, specifically among prostitutes at the time. And for many years, he shared that he communicated a very basic, very shallow, what you could call today, seeker-sensitive message. It went something like this. Choose God, turn to Jesus, he'll love you and forgive you. But he wasn't getting any kind of traction. They weren't compelled by this message. It wasn't appealing. And on top of this, they, they, they said, you know, I can't really believe in a message like that. They, they felt like it was too impossible based on their lives. We make bad decisions. How are we, how are we supposed to now make right decisions? It, it felt out of reach. And so what he shares is he completely altered his approach. He leaned into his theological upbringing, which for him was Presbyterian. He abandoned his shallow message about salvation, and he began to tell them about God who sovereignly rules over all things. And he did the strangest thing. He took them to scriptures like Romans 9 that talks about and highlights God's choice of who would receive mercy and how it's often those whom the world has rejected that God chooses to be a part of his family. And that before we seek God, God seeks us. And that salvation isn't based on someone's pedigree or behavior or religious effort or even their own decision-making ability, but based on God's gracious will. And that even our worst sins can't cancel out God's eternal plans. Sidebar. When salvation was presented based on their decision, it felt very impossible to them. When salvation was presented as resting in God's hands and according to God's mercy, it felt approachable. Sidebar to the sidebar. Election is compelling to the marginalized and often offensive to the privileged. If we're like, mm, that's uncomfortable, it probably highlights our privilege in life. So they began to listen and ask questions. And they asked, well, how do we know that God is seeking? How are we supposed to know that God is seeking us? And he responded, if you hear this gospel message and you believe it and you receive it by faith, then that is showing that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life and God is drawing you to himself. And the way that you know that mercy has come into your life is your ability to recognize your need for it. And a great number responded in faith. At the heart of election is God's mercy on full display. 
a mercy that is medicine to a broken and hurting world. We first see God's mercy. Let's look secondly at God's might. Verse 17 and 18. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Now this is where we get into the mystery. We don't understand the mind of God. I'm not standing up here saying that I understand the mind of God. We can't completely fathom why God does what he does. But what we're told here is that the purpose behind God's actions, whether to choose or to reject or to soften a heart or to harden a heart, whether to raise up the humble or to tear down the proud, the reason we're told here is in order that God may display his power and might in this world so that God's power and might may be put on full display. We say things like, our God is an awesome God. Our God is mighty. We sing about the might and power of God. But the question we need to consider today is do we actually believe that? And if we believe it intellectually, do we actually want that? It's okay to consider right now whether you actually want a mighty, awesome, in-charge, sovereign God. Do we want that and all the implications that come with that? For many of us, we have settled for a tame, weak, palatable vision of God. We have minimized his authority. We have downplayed his power and his control. A sociologist named Christian Smith described the, what, he, what he described as the predominant faith, religious faith in the West today, the faith of most Americans he described as moralistic therapeutic deism, which the simple tenets of this faith is that God wants you good and he wants you happy, but he's not all that involved in your life. He wants you to be good, he wants you to be happy, and he's just kind of somewhere off there in space. Sound familiar? And so it's no wonder that many of us feel that our faith is weak and it's tame and it's boring and it's shallow. It's okay to be honest. Faith feels weak, tame, shallow, and boring. And it's because our vision of God is weak, tame, boring, and shallow. J.B. Phillips, about 40, 50 years ago, wrote these words, Many men and women today are living often with inner dissatisfaction without any faith in God at all. And this is not because they're particularly wicked or selfish or, as the old-fashioned would say, godless, but because they have not found within their adult minds a God big enough to account for life, big enough to command their highest admiration and respect. If it is true that there is someone in charge of the whole mystery of life and death, then we can hardly expect to escape a sense of futility and frustration until we begin to see what he is like and what his purposes are. And then he goes on to say this famous statement. If you can't believe in God, chances are your God is too small. If you can't believe in God today, chances are your idea, your vision, your picture of God is weak and small. Life is big. Our struggles are intense. 
Our questions are many. Our doubts are fierce. Our enemy, ferocious. We need someone who is mighty and great. We don't need a small, tame, weak, impotent God. We need a mighty God. And that is who we have in this God. Now, Paul anticipates another objection here. Okay, Paul. All right, I'm tracking with you. I'm seeing where you're going here. Verse 19, you say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? If this God is so mighty, so in control, so powerful, then how could someone be blamed if they're doing what God is making them do? That's a legit question. (laughs) That is a legit question. And it's safe to say that Paul does not give us the answer that we want. First, he says, verse 20, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? So, important reminder before we dive into this disagreement here. God is God. You are human. He's the potter. You're the clay. Don't get that mixed up. Okay? Because you are not trying to form a God in your image. You are formed in the image of an immovable God. Now, this is not to say that we are these dumb, lifeless hunks of clay. It's easy to gather that from the passage, you bunch of dumb, lifeless hunks of clay. That is not what's being said here. Nor is it saying that God has not given us the ability to reason or to ask questions. Read through the Psalms. There's lots of question marks in the Psalms. These are not the sincerely perplexed questions of someone who is honestly and earnestly seeking to know God better. These are the kind of combative, critical, answering back kind of questions, the the kind of questions that attempt to put God on trial. Who are you, God, to act like this? Like Job in the Old Testament, who spent a lot of time, you read through Job, and he spends a lot of time asking God, well, why would you do that? Well, tell me about that. Why, why, Why would you allow this, and why this, and why this, and why this, until the very end? It says that God calls Job to his feet. Stand like a man, Job. Face your maker. And in that moment, he stands before God in the whirlwind, and all he can do is put his hand over his mouth and acknowledge, I am small and God is big. And so as we engage this topic, that's where we need to stand. We need to stand before the whirlwind of God's power and might and acknowledge, I am small. God is big. Amen? Another way of responding to this objection is to show that God has revealed his might, listen, in bridling it. Counterintuitive, but God has shown his power and his might by bridling it. Look with me in in verse 22. Well, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Isn't that interesting? Displaying his power through patiently enduring. Think about it. Power, strength, might, isn't just revealed in brute displays of strength, like flexing muscles and punching things and breaking things down. Power is revealed, I think, most in restraint. There's a scene from The Dark Knight Rises where a rich, crooked businessman 
is trying to control everyone around him with his money, including Bain. And he's like, well, this person failed, and this person failed, and he's talking crap about Bain, and Bain this, and Bain that, and then all of a sudden, Bain walks into the room. And all Bain does is he simply puts his hand, you remember this scene? Okay, some of you. He puts his hand softly, creepy, just softly on his neck, and he says, do you feel in charge? <laughs> do you feel in charge, big man? Just softly, right on his neck. No pain, just right there. And it's in that moment, it gives me chills even thinking about it. It's in that moment that the audience gets a real sense of his strength as it's bridled. How does God reveal his might? For one, it's in the way that he's treated those who've rejected him. By patiently enduring by not immediately giving people what they deserve. Now, a reckoning day is coming. I would I'd be lying to you if I said it wasn't. A reckoning day is coming for every single one of us. But in the meantime, as described here, God is holding back. God is patiently enduring. As we saw earlier in Romans, God reveals his wrath not by destroying people. When we think of the wrath of God, we think of fire coming down from heaven and zapping someone. But as we see in Romans chapter 1, his wrath is revealed by allowing someone to go their own way. You want that path? Go ahead. So here, I believe, is the explanation. It's in that letting them go their own way, following people's stubborn hearts, that their hearts are hardened all the more. How is a heart, heart hardened? By God saying, go ahead, see where that leads. God is not being described, and you need to hear me say this, God is not being described as forcing people into hell. God is not being described as strong-arming them down the path of destruction. This, you know, these people go this way, these people go the right way. He is described as revealing his strength by patiently holding it back and allowing men and women to go it their own way. But also there's beauty here because it's not just, his power is not just shown negatively, it's shown positively. God's might is revealed in his power to save. He's mighty to save those who are far from God and far from his family. God is mighty in the way that he turns religious, you know, assumptions upside down and welcomes the least likely into the family of God. God is mighty as he holds us back from going down the path of destruction. Think about how much strength that God has to reveal in answering the prayer, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. We're like the child that just continues to be drawn towards destruction, drawn towards self-destruction, and God is constantly holding us back. He's mighty in his ability to hold extreme, extremely diverse people together in unity. Look around. This takes might. In a divided world where people are suspicious and hate each other and don't trust each other, to gather in a one unified voice around Jesus Christ is nothing shy of a miracle. And he's mighty in his ability to preserve a remnant throughout the ages to cause his people to persevere no matter how much turmoil or opposition. God is mighty in all that he does for his people. No half measures here. God is not holding back when it comes to your good and your well-being.
God's might. Let's look finally at God's masterpiece, and then we'll conclude. Now, throughout the scriptures, God is described as a creator, a craftsman, a poet, a potter, an author. What does this mean? It means that God is an author. I'm sorry, God is an artist. And the church is often described with these different pictures, a body, a family, a flock, a temple. But one important way to view the church that the Bible describes is as a masterpiece. When was the last time you thought of the church in the 21st century as a masterpiece? More like a mess than a masterpiece. But as Ephesians 3 describes, it's the church that is the manifold wisdom of God. A better translation of that is actually that it's the church that is the multicolored, multifaceted display of God's wisdom and creativity before the watching world in all the heavenly realms. So if someone were to come to God and say, all right, artist, show me your best piece. Show me your most beautiful masterpiece. It wouldn't be Half Dome. It wouldn't be the most beautiful sunset on the beach. It wouldn't be galaxies in motion. It would, and it continues to be the church. The church is God's greatest work. And as an artist gathers material, this artist wisely selects each stroke and each chisel and each shade. So God gathers his materials, items that on their own aren't that, all that special. But when they come together, when we, the pieces of this masterpiece, come together, they form beauty. And as Romans shows us, what God chooses to gather into this masterpiece is a diverse group of men and, and women and children from across the globe. He describes them as Jews and Gentiles. All sorts of people are included. Now remember that as an artist, the artist is the one that has the creative vision, and it's the artist that has absolute and total freedom to use whatever they feel will enhance the vision most. And so the question is, what or who does God gather for this masterpiece? And this is where it gets really interesting. And I, I deeply appreciate that you've stuck with us thus far. I see the resistance, the tension in our bodies. This is where it gets interesting. Because verse 27 says that although there are countless physical descendants of Israel, that only a remnant of them will be saved. What's a remnant? I remember this from my uh, floor covering days. A remnant is a small remaining piece of cloth or carpet or clay or fill in the blank. It's the leftover piece when the greater portion has been used and finished and sold. The remnant is the insignificant stuff that you gather up and most would throw away. It's the clippings. It's the scrap. It's the leftovers. In the 1400s, an artist named Agostino de Ducio began to work uh, carving a, a large piece of marble. But what he found, what it, it was just too hard, too weird, it was just too hard to work with, and so he ended up giving up. And it sat in a storage, uh, like some sort of you know, 15th century version of a storage unit, for about a decade. Another artist named Antonio Rossellini, uh, Rossellino 
took a crack at it and began to realize himself that it was just too hard to be formed and he gave up on it. So 40 more years, this hunk of marble just sat collecting dust. And so the stone sat abandoned again for these four decades until another artist came along and actually saw something in that piece of marble that everyone had given up on. And the artist's name was Michelangelo. And the piece that he ended up carving out of this rejected, forgotten hunk of rock is probably one of the most famous, timeless pieces of art, King David. As Romans 9 describes, God's masterpiece isn't made up of the sort of material that you would expect a holy, perfect, flawless God, flawless artist to use. This is why Jesus was offending so many religious people in his time, because he kept moving towards the people that they attempted to throw away. God, no, 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 you're moving in the wrong direction. That's trash. That's throwaway stuff. This is the goal. No, I'm moving in this direction. That's offensive. Look at our beauty. Look at all that we've done for you. No, I'm headed toward the remnant. Quoting from the prophet Hosea, Paul points out that God gathers the not my people people. You ever felt like you don't belong? You ever felt like you don't fit in? You ever felt like you're just an outsider looking in? God gathers the not my people people. And God gathers the unlovely people. And God gathers the illegitimate children. And out of those components, he brings it together to form a beloved people, his cherished family. The cost, here's, here's where the beauty shines brightest, I think. The cost of this remnant, see, God didn't just like go through the rubbish heap and like pick out the remnants and then put it together. He actually purchased this remnant. And the cost to obtain this throwaway piece in order to turn it into a masterpiece The cost was the very life and blood of his own son, Jesus Christ. What happened? The artist became the trimming. And he wasn't just left over and cast aside. Jesus was thrown away, cast away and destroyed so that you and I could be gathered in and molded. And on the third day, he rose again in glory, displaying his transforming power that gives us hope and confidence in all of our scars, wounds, and brokenness that God can make something beautiful out of this too. This is what gives the church beauty. It's not that we outshine half domes and sunsets and galaxies. Our value and worth comes from being united in faith to Jesus Christ, united in his death and his resurrection. And here's the glorious invitation. You can belong too. You can say along with Paul and the rest of the humble saints here today, even me. Even I can belong. And we can by simply acknowledging our need for God's mercy and welcoming his saving power into your life by faith. This God has come for you and he's building something beautiful. And you can get in on it too. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today.